0: Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on Facing the Canon is Dr Sharon Diricks, an apologist. Dr Sharon Diricks, welcome to Facing the Canon. Thank you. Lovely to have you, Sharon. You went to university, I think it was Bristol University. That's right. You were not a Christian what would you have called yourself at the time?
1: Yeah, I think I would have probably described myself as an agnostic. I, I, I remember, um, well knowing from an early age that I loved the sciences and, and remember my A-level biology teacher um, handing me this book by someone called Richard Dawkins and this was back in the early 80s and he'd just written this book called The Selfish Gene and so I, I was kind of reading things like that, and um, had just absorbed the view that, yeah, that pretty much God didn't exist, but I didn't sort of believe that in a very um, antagonistic way, Um, and that, you know, you couldn't really marry any sort of belief with being a credible thinking person, and, and certainly not a scientist. But I, I, yeah, I think I had just absorbed my view um, and wasn't holding it really strongly, but arrived at Bristol an agnostic, I'd pretty, pretty much... And what were you studying? I'd arrived to study biochemistry. Right. And
0: then you got invited to go and hear some Christians who were being grilled for their faith and being asked all sorts of questions. Yeah. And
1: something shifted... That's right, yeah. In in the very first week, I was invited to what's known as Gorilla Christian, and that was intriguing to me. And I, so I went along to this event where there were four Christians in a row. The room was full. It was during Freshers' Week, and uh, and I asked... Uh, about halfway through the evening having listened to their answers to lots of different questions I put my hand up and asked my question which was surely you can't believe in God and be a scientist at the same time and I was actually given the answer that yes you can and um, this even a simple answer um, that they gave um, was actually um, it was a game changer for me it actually set me on a a track of thinking, okay, well, I, I need to really, I clearly haven't thought about this as much as I should have done. And it set me on uh, a trajectory of um, grilling more Christians over the next um, 18 months and asking a lot more questions. Um, and, and, and reassessing
0: your own position.
1: Reassessing, very and much And then so.
0: realising that actually what you were standing on was quite flawed.
1: It just wasn't thought through. I just had, had kind of decide I mean nobody wakes up one day with a, a deciding okay I'm going to I'm going to be an atheist or an agnostic. I think we just absorb it from media, from from books, magazines, TV, and I think that, that is what I had done. And at the same time, I don't think there was a Christian witness in my school environment. If there was, I was completely unaware of it. And so it wasn't really until being at university that I began to, in this Hall of Residence, see these notices asking these provocative questions like, is this life all that there is? And what are we as as human beings? And these really caught my attention on the way up the stairs to the canteen and um, and so, yeah, uh, it was a real a real um time of journeying and really reassessing my my beliefs.
0: You then graduated, you went and did further studies at
1: at Cambridge. What did you study? Yes, yeah, so i I did a urine industry first, and there discovered. Um, MRI and loved the idea that you can look inside the human body without cutting into it, and um, and actually grew to um, become very interested in brain imaging, and so began to look for PhDs in that area, which took me to Cambridge, which is also where I met my husband. Um, we met in a brain imaging lab. How how romantic! I is know. That? Is that yes. Go on,
0: What is brain imaging? Yes.
1: Well, there are lots of different kinds, but I was looking at MRI, which stands for um, magnetic resonance imaging. And it's a, a way of using the water molecules that are naturally in your body to generate a picture of your body, a 3D image of it. And that's a structural MRI. But I was also looking at functional MRI, which is looking at the activity in your brain when you do something. So you put someone in a scanner and you give them a very well-designed activity to do. like It might be something like tap their fingers, which activates their motor areas in their brain, or or um, remember some stuff which uses their working memory. And you can generate maps of brain activity based on the blood flow in your brain. And so you're not giving anyone any artificial drugs or anything that's bad for them. You're using the natural properties of your body to generate images. And so I spent three and a half years doing a PhD in this area, Um, yeah. Well, tell
0: us, Sharon, tell us some facts about the brain.
1: Oh, gosh. Um, well, um, at any one moment, your brain is generating enough electricity to power an LED light. Yes. So if you're having a light bulb moment um, at this precise moment, it's, it's for good reason. Um, I also had the very kind of sobering um, opportunity to dissect a human brain um, when I was doing postdoctoral research in the States. It looks a little bit like mushroom. But thankfully, a lot more going on than simply what's going on in a mushroom. Um,
0: How big is the brain?
1: uh, The human brain weighs about one and a half kilos, a couple of pounds. It uses 20% of your body's energy despite only taking up 2% of its weight, which is why when you're working really hard and you're eating a lot, you're actually not uh, gaining any weight because you're burning energy. It uses a lot of energy from the... Yeah, just burns a lot of energy. It's fascinating, it's isn't it? It's a fascinating it? organ. And, yes. um
0: and you went on to do more further research.
1: I did, so after my PhD, which was looking more at the methodology involved at a time when functional MRI was actually really just getting going, I then went on to do a postdoc, which looked at what was happening in the in the brain in um, cocaine addiction. So I was working with cocaine addicts at the Medical College of Wisconsin in the USA, and um, yeah, spent three years working with them and looking at cocaine uh, in the brain in an ethically approved study, by the way, by the US government, wow. um, and and also comparing it with uh, a drug called methylphenidate, which is also what we know as Ritalin given in ADHD, uh, and looking at the impact of these two things on, on the brain and comparing them.
0: You're a scientist. You've spent many, many years in research. You're currently an apologist. What is an apologist?
1: Well, I guess you can have apologists for all kinds of things, um, but an apologist in the Christian sense is someone who gives reasons uh, as to why we believe what we do, and those reasons can help us to kind of ground—not not just knowing that we believe, but knowing why we believe it—and so. I guess the word itself we, we get from the New Testament when, um, the apostle Peter says, always be ready to give a reason to anyone who asks you. Oh, sorry. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. The Greek word for answer is apologia. I don't need to say that to you. Absolutely. And, um, and it means kind of a reasoned defense, like you would give in a court of law. And and so apologetics can be involving giving reasons why you can believe in God and be a scientist, uh, why the Bible can be trusted, um, why you can actually still believe in a, a God who is loving and powerful, even in the face of suffering. Um, and it, you know, we use it to talk about why Christianity is saying something a bit different from other belief systems and all kinds of areas that are still really relevant and it's particularly important in the age that we find ourselves in where we're seeing people who have not actually grown up in the Christian faith, who have not necessarily picked up a Bible in their lifetime and so we can't simply start with the words of Jesus um, as, a, as a starting point, we have to say why we can even trust those words in the first place and unpack and a bit of the context. And so, yeah.
0: So I'm just intrigued, Sharon. What, what motivated you to move from being a scientist to being an apologist?
1: Yes, you could argue I'm still a scientist, just my data is different.
0: That's um, very good.
1: Yes. Um, But there were some, so it was when we moved to the States and I was doing this um, postdoc in uh, cocaine addiction, I found a couple of things happened. First of all, I started having all of these opportunities to have conversations with my colleagues, Uh, in in the lab that I was in and all kinds of people were coming out of the woodwork with questions. I ended up doing um, um, seeker Bible studies in coffee shops with um, two or three of my work colleagues and just meeting others for coffee and taking their questions. And there was a a hunger um, to know about spiritual things. Uh, that was happening in parallel with the research that I was doing. At the same time, we got ourselves involved in a really fantastic church and I met this w- wonderful um, evangelist, a lady called Debbie, who I'm still in touch with now. And um, and she was is and was clearly um, very, very gifted at spotting people that didn't know the Lord and meeting with them and leading them to Christ. And I hadn't met anyone like that before. And Now up until um, by this point, I had been a Christian for six or seven years. Now maybe I just hadn't noticed. Maybe it was that that actually the Lord had other things to do in my life to, to get me to that point. But I suddenly find myself thinking, okay, I know I'm supposed to want to be like Jesus, but I also want to be like Debbie. I see something in her that actually inspires me and I want that. And I think that's biblical, actually. Absolutely. Um, and so, um, yeah, I started meeting with Debbie, and Debbie um, g- gave me these uh, this way to do a six week one to one investigator Bible study, and so I was able to meet with colleagues and do that. And um, and so I I realised during this postdoc that. I was an evangelist. Yes. I had the uh, the gift of an evangelist. um, And then I was thinking, well, what do I do with that? Is that something that just happens alongside my research or does God want me to do more? And then in parallel with that, we felt called back to the UK uh, and to kind of reach people here because there are many uh, here and the proportion of those that don't um, know Christ is very high. Um, and these same friends, Debbie and her husband, had attended a conference and had heard about a center that was being set up in the UK um, that was gonna tra- train people to give reasons and um, venture into this area of apologetics. And so I applied to study at, at what is now known as OCHA, Um and that was partly at, at Wycliffe Hall at the time. Um, and so that was the beginning of the transition. I studied for a year. I then returned to science um, for a few more years before, but then joining the team at OCCA as a, as a team member.
0: So, OCCA now, which is based in Oxford, what does OCCA stand for?
1: Yeah, uh, OCCA stands for um, the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. And what yeah. what do you offer? What does OCA offer? So OCA offers um, training uh, for people um, who are interested in being skilled up in responding to questions, and we 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 do our training in a very interactive way. We we want to have a, a close uh, interaction with those that, that come to study. We're in the process of building online courses so people can join us from wherever they are in the world. It's accessible. You can Great. study alongside holding down a job. Um, and um, we also go out and speak and we offer bespoke training to churches and conferences and organizations. And we also go and speak on different topics if people want to hold hold an event and have an apologist evangelist come and speak on. So tomorrow evening I'm speaking on, is there anything special about being human? Um, people are going to invite their friends in their 20s and 30s and, and, and hear a response to that. So we do things like that as well.
0: Wonderful. And here I've got just a couple of you- two of your books, Am I Just My Brain? (laughs) So, obviously, having studied the brain and spent years in research with regard to the brain, that was an obvious title for one of your books. But tell us, what is this about?
1: Yes. uh, Well, in in short, the answer is no, just in case. I mean, spoiler alert for those of you that weren't sure. But... um, So there are all kinds of um, questions being asked about what people are. What is a human being? What are we? Are we just advanced apes that have managed to climb to the top of, you know, the food chain and the evolutionary uh, uh, tree Uh, or are we machines or are we souls trapped in a body longing to escape one day to float off to heaven? What are we? And there's a narrative out there from some, not all, but some scientists and philosophers that says, look, you are your brain. Your, your brain drives who you are. Everything that you think, say and do is explainable by the activity in your head, by these non-conscious processes in your synapses. And um, and so I wanted to respond to that. We find this narrative a lot. Even if you just walk into a bookshop, you see a lot of popular level books that assume this fact. Um, And so I wanted to write something that was accessible to anyone, whatever you believe, whether you believe in God or not, but that actually addresses the questions in a rigorous way. And the heart of it is that, you know, you don't just have a brain, you have a mind as well. Um, You have a brain with all of its kind of neurons and chemicals and transmitters and synapses, but you also have a mind with all of its thoughts and feelings and emotions and memories. And, you know, there's something that it is like to be you that just capturing data from your brain isn't going to tell, you know, capture in quite the same way. If we were to try and do a study, um, J. John, of what it's like for you to write your next book... And we thought, okay, you are your brain, we're gonna put an EEG cap on you, you're gonna wear that pretty much the whole time, even when you're asleep, because you're writing when you're asleep as well, right? And um, we'll pop you in an MRI scanner, we'll take some MRI scans, um, functional and structural, and we'll collect some really interesting data from your brain. Will that tell us what it is like for you to write your next book?
0: No. No. No, of course not. Of course
1: not. I mean, it will tell us something, but it won't tell us everything. And if we want to know what it's like for you to write your next book, we have to ask you. And um, and so, you know, we there, there is so much more to a human being than just their brain activity. And that's not to say that neuroscience isn't telling us wonderful and extraordinary things about the human brain. And clearly, it is correlated with the mind. When you use your mind, your brain... Is activated and clearly these two things are connected and integrated but to simply chalk a person down to the cell voltages and neurotransmitters in their brain is to offer a diminished view of a human being and so my intention with this book was to open up that conversation and show that um, this is not enough to describe human beings. We also, um, you actually don't even need to leave neuroscience to see that humans are complex. All kinds of fascinating observations made in the clinic about patients with large chunks of their brain missing, but still very intact minds. And um, people who have had to have their two hemispheres separated because of epilepsy, and essentially their brain is cut in two, but there's still one person, an integrated person. Of course, some interesting changes happen, but there's still just one being. Um, And of course, there's the very fascinating topic of near-death experiences, where people who are in a state of reversible clinical death that report being conscious.
0: Now, you write about that, and you've looked into that. What did you discover as you researched that area?
1: I discovered that it is a lot more rigorous than people think. It's not just anecdotal evidence. What, what happened, um, it's, it's a data set that's only arise, arisen since we've been able to kind of have people in that state of clinical death, since we've had cardiac surgery and neurological surgery where people have to be cooled to a very low temperature, their brain EEG signal is, uh, you know, its there isn't any detectable signal and their heart rate, their heart is stopped and they're in a state in order for this surgery to be performed. And what surgeons used to hear was that their, some of their patients were reporting upon resuscitation that they had been conscious. And so that caused some surgeons to collect some um, systematic data across all of their patient groups and there are studies from different national um, different countries capturing this there's a lot of books out there on it um, and they see roughly seven to ten percent of, of patients reporting very interesting facts that it would be hard to have just made up so um, what
0: what kind of facts are they reporting
1: things like um, Being able to fully recount a conversation that had happened down the corridor in a different room in the hospital about the person that was on their deathbed, to the extent it was a little bit awkward because the content of the conversation wasn't wasn't good. But the patient upon resuscitation recounted it to their relatives. Um, Other things like somebody observing a um, slightly random tennis shoe on a roof in another part of the hospital entirely that you could never have known about and the staff didn't know about because it's inaccessible, you can't climb up there. Um, Another observation about a woman who was congenitally blind in um, in her lifetime who then, um, upon resuscitation, recounted the appearance of someone else who had also died moments earlier that she couldn't have known about. All sorts of extraordinary things that just give us pause for thought to say, human beings are really interesting. And even if some of these may have been fabricated, who knows? But even if one of these is a genuine yes, instance. But they couldn't
0: have been fabricated because like the tennis shoes,
1: right. there's no way. Right, right. But And even if all of them were except for one, for example, that, that still shows that you are way more than just your brain, because if your brain is clinically dead and you are still conscious, then you can't simply be your brain. There must be more to it.
0: Fascinating hugely. We're encouraged, Sharon, to love God with all of our mind, our heart. When we say heart, what does that mean?
1: Yeah, th- this is a, a great question. I think that the way that heart is used in, 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 the, in the Bible is a little bit how soul is used, actually, and mind. And that, that um, quote from Deuteronomy in the words of Jesus It's actually really talking about the sort of an inner reality. When I said there's something that it's like to be you, there's a you that can't be captured physically. There's a, there is more. When, when we talk about worshipping God with all of our heart, we're not referring to a particular bit of us that we can segment and put off to the side and say that's different from this it's actually a measure of extent when you worship god or follow him with all of your heart that's that's a measure of degree not anatomy or philosophy even that's like i'm giving it everything i'm giving god all of me um and so i think that's what we mean by heart and, and in a similar way that's what we mean by By mind and soul, Um, soul is a bit of a slippery term. It's every time I think about it, I realise I, I still haven't got my head around the soul and exactly what it is. Um, You know, when we think about the soul, we often think of um, this immaterial part of us that maybe floats off to heaven one day to be with God. But actually, that's a little bit more like how Plato would describe the soul than. Um, necessarily, how the Bible describes the soul um, you know in in the Bible the the soul as we've said it's it's actually all of you it's it's kind of the whole person, the physical and the non-physical, um, but it's sort of somehow breathed into with the life of God. Um, it's a really it's a really complex topic to think about.
0: Uh, your other book uh, Sharon, Why. Why? looking <laughs> at God, evil, and personal suffering. and there are many Sharon, many of us on who are Christians, and there are some unanswered questions, aren't there? And we live in this world of miracle and mystery. Yeah. What, what do we do about those questions that haven't yet been answered?
1: Oh, I yes, and I think what is so important to say, and particularly as an apologist where we like to give answers, is that <clears throat> it's important to know where there are helpful things that we can say that help to frame things and to, to realise where we are entering into the realm of mystery and we need to kind of hold that before God. I think that, um, you know, I'm encouraged that the very first book of the Bible chronologically is the book of Job where he addresses this universal, most universal problem and uh, thing that everyone encounters one way or another. And we see this very interesting and at times very painful conversation between Job and his friends. But they are their most comforting right at the beginning when they don't say anything. There is something about the profundity of silence that captures the depth of a person's suffering, that words, as soon as you start to add words, you've lost something. I think apologists need to remember, particularly on this topic of suffering, and in the context that we find ourselves when all kinds of things are coming to light that there is something very, very deep and profound and mysterious about suffering. We need to be prepared not just to give answers, but to sit with people in their pain and to feel it, but to gently um, offer the arms of Jesus as well, the God who knows what it is to suffer, who who himself didn't shy away from suffering um, and who entered into suffering like us and also for us to um, somehow mean that when we suffer we don't have to suffer alone we we can actually know the comfort and um, um, the arms of God in in the things that life throws at us and it throws many things and sometimes it can feel unrelenting and in the wake of a pandemic we're all caught up in the same kind of suffering in some ways but God um, knows and he knows us and sees us and if God doesn't exist, then this is just the way the world is, and we need to make the best of it, and this is the only life you get. But if God exists, we don't suffer alone, we don't suffer for nothing, and one day it will be ended. Um, The Bible talks about Not just heaven, but a new heaven and a new earth, which will be every bit as physical as this one and real, and in which God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, in which there'll be no more crying or mourning or suffering or pain. And it's extraordinary to me, you know, as a mother, when I wipe away the tears from my children's eyes, it's the most delicate part of the eye. And we're told that God will spend time doing that. And that raises the question, how long is that going to take? This incredibly tender moment of comfort from God. Um, Our suffering does not go unnoticed. We're not just a a blip on the landscape or a statistic. We're seen and known by God. And that's what the Christian faith has to say to the question of suffering.
0: Beautiful, Sharon. pleased that you're an apologist. Uh, You have the ability to articulate things simply and help us think things through. It's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon.
1: Thanks so much.
0: I hope that has inspired you. It really has inspired me. Do visit the website, find out more Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again.
1: You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit
0: www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media. Hi everyone, I'm delighted to be able to let you know that our new resource, How Can I Pray, is available now. This is a book targeted for primary school age children. If we're honest, we all find it hard to pray and it's good to remind ourselves of that beautiful prayer that the Lord Jesus instructed us to pray. This is beautifully illustrated and communicates very simply how we can talk to our Heavenly Father. Can I encourage you to purchase copies for your children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, for your churches and help children in their journey of faith.
1: Get your copy now at canonjjohn.com